Hey there, and welcome to the Box Office Watch podcast, where we keep watch on how much money movies are making and why. This is the show recapping the weekend of December 4th through the 5th, 2020. My name is Paulo, and I'm your host. Hope everyone's doing well. It's only been a week since our last episode, and yet it feels like a brand new world when it comes to the box office. Uh, This, of course, is due to the bombshell that Warner Brothers dropped on us last week after their initial announcement that Wonder Woman 1984 will be both a theatrical and an HBO Max release on Christmas Day. That bombshell, of course, is that not only will Wonder Woman 1984 be following this mixed model of the first 30 days being on both streaming and theatrical and then the next 30 in video followed by being on VOD, their entire 2021 slate will follow the same model. This is 17 films being affected, uh, with, and these are as follows with their planned release dates. Mortal Kombat, a reboot of the video game franchise, uh, is coming January 15th. The Little Ones, a crime thriller starring Denzel Washington, Rami Malek, and Jared Leto, January 29th. Tom and Jerry, the mixed live-action computer-animated adaptation of the classic Hanna-Barbera characters alongside Chloe Grace Mortez and Michael Pena, among others, on March 5th. Uh, The Many Saints of Newark, uh, which is a prequel film for The Sopranos, coming March 12th. Reminiscence, a sci-fi drama starring Hugh Jackman and Rebecca Ferguson, April 16th. Godzilla vs. Kong, the legendary picture's kaiju battle film between the titular characters, coming May 21st. Remember this one, we'll come back to it specifically. Um, The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It, the eighth entry in the Conjuring franchise by James Wan, uh, coming June 4th. In the Heights, the film adaptation of Lin-Manuel Miranda's Broadway musical uh, that came before Hamilton, uh, June 18th. Space Jam, A Legacy, the LeBron James-led sequel to the classic Looney Tunes basketball film, July 16th. Uh, The Suicide Squad, the James Gunn-directed soft reboot of the misfit DC anti-hero group, uh, coming August 6th. Uh, Dune, the Denis Villeneuve-adapted version of the uh, Frank Herbert sci-fi classic, uh, which is owned by Legendary, uh, October 1st. Uh, Again, keep this one in mind. We'll come back to it later. Uh, King Richard, the biographical film starring Will Smith, looking at the life of the father and coach of tennis superstars Venice Venus and Serena Williams, uh, coming November 15th. Matrix 4, uh, the next entry in the classic sci-fi franchise starring Keanu Reeves, uh, December 22nd. Uh, Judas and the Black Messiah, a biographical film of the chairman of the Black Panther Party starring Daniel Kaluuya and Lakeith Stanfield. Uh, No release date, though I imagine it would probably be sometime in February for Black History Month. Uh, Those Who Wish Me Dead, uh, a female-led neo-western starring Angelina Jolie, no confirmed release date. Malignant, a thriller directed by James Wan, no release, confirmed release date, though I could probably see this being like maybe the September-August period. Um, and then Cry Macho, a neo-Western drama starring and directed by Clint Eastwood based on the 1975 novel of the same name. No confirmed release date, though based on the description, it sounds like it's going to be some kind of Oscar awards bait type of film. So, if it wasn't obvious from my reaction to last week's news of Wonder Woman 84, uh, the Warner... 
trying out this, you know, and, and that, that's Warner trying this on their biggest film to date. The fact that this is a unilateral decision for the entire 2021 film slate is a big effing deal. Uh, pardon my offense. Uh, they're not even waiting to see the results of the Wonder Woman trial. They're not even, you know, going to do this. Oh, we'll do a couple of films at a time. They're just going all in before even hearing the Wonder Woman news for all the films for 2021. And, you know, certainly I don't expect 2021 to be a 100% return to normalcy, like, say, 2019 before the coronavirus. It will definitely be a slow return as consumers, you know, start to feel more comfortable going back to movie theaters as the COVID vaccines become more widespread, uh, say, around, you know, April of, 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 of next year at, at the earliest. Um, that's still a lot of potential box office being left on the table. Um, you know, yes, they are releasing them internationally as well, and some of these will do well internationally. But some of them are also definitely much more geared toward domestic audience. You know, I'm not great at figuring out exactly forecasting how many films uh, would have made. You know, uh, you know, even without considering the COVID softened market. Um, but ignoring that some of the, the so- smaller films aren't for the mass market. You know, even just the films in the later half of the year, Matrix Four, Suicide Squad, Space Jam, those have made truckloads of money um, if they were coming out. Um, I think you know, looking at 2019, an average year would be something along the lines of you know maybe 1.6 to even $2 billion uh, for global box office. Um, now, in, you know, in my head, this is, of course, a move by Warner Brothers, encouraged by their parent company, AT&T, to prioritize the growth of their premier streaming product, HBO Max. Uh, the last report I saw saw that HBO Max had only about 8 million active users. Uh, this was, I think, back in October. Um, another 28 million or so from legacy HBO Now users who haven't yet converted over to HBO Max. This number's probably gone up to somewhere in the, the 10 to 12 million range. Um, but, you know, with the demise of Quibi, um, among the major streaming platforms out there, this is on the lower end of the number of users, which is not where Warner Brothers wanted to be when they launched this product. Um, this is partly due, again, to a failure to successfully launch the product due to confusing branding as well as not being able to get Amazon and Roku on board at the time of launch. Plus, there were criticisms that there was no real must-watch show, such as The Mandalorian on Disney+. And this move to prioritize, you know, the, uh, the streaming release as opposed to, uh, you know, trying to trying to split the difference between that and theatrical uh, is, you know, kind of in line with everything we've seen this year since that launch. You know, the restructure of, you know, of this of the company towards focusing on HBO Max as the future. Um, Jason Keillor, the new CEO, comes from Hulu, and it's not surprising that you know. Warner Media and AT and T want to see HBO Max be the next 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 be the next Netflix. You know they probably have Netflix envy and even Disney Plus envy to some degree in their eyes to see how many users there out are out there. You know if you notice the release dates that I I read out you know just now, there will. Not every film is going to be for everyone, but there's going to be at least one major film coming uh, every month, more or less, right? Um, and you know, the, the, from a consumer point of view, at, at face value, this seems pretty good, right? Getting, you know, paying fifteen dollars a month, and you know, for the entire family to be able to watch the next next Warner uh, Warner Brothers film, you know, at home at no additional cost, seems like a good deal upfront, right? So that that's the proposition that they have to consumers. I have to give them credit for that. Now, of course, you know, uh, in doing so, you know, there are repercussions for this for the broader box office. You know, Warner, as I said, they may be trying to get more consumers in on HBO Max with this very juicy proposition. Um, what they are giving up is that they're giving up 
you know, the potential movie-going audience in theaters. And yes, again, COVID has reduced the amount of you of people who want to go see a movie theater, but there are still downstream effects uh, to this. And one, you know, this note, while a lot of the focus is on the domestic market because, you know, HBO Max is primarily, uh, you know, is, is only located in the U.S. right now, and most box office places care primarily about the U.S. box office as that's the largest market until, you know, China came along recently. Um, this will negatively impact international box office, right? The fact that if you have a day-and-date release of a movie on HBO Max means that pirating, you know, pirating teams are going to be able to get a high-definition rip available, you know, day-and-date of release for viewers in international markets and you know unfortunately the biggest film market out there china uh does have a piracy problem right now yes they they have been so that even if piracy is an option that they'll go still see a film uh in theaters uh you know if it necessarily warrants it i would you know say something like godzilla versus kong i would expect to be like this but you know it's still a problem in not only in, in china but in other markets as well that piracy will be an impact even if you know a lot of the trade groups say that, oh, it's a problem here in the States. Eh, I wouldn't say it's as, as big a problem. It's, it's really China, I think, that's the concern there. Uh, secondly, you know, we've talked about this on previous episodes of the podcast, but strong theatrical releases are often tied and correlated to strong home media releases and VOD and physical sales, uh, which, again, if you have a lower... Um, box office, if you have a lower box office, that correlates down. The logic being basically like, hey, you know, is it worth it for me to pay for this media and you know paying the media which is important you know giving additional revenue to HBO Max to Warner Brothers right as a as part of renting the media um, am I going to pay for this right the easiest way to do that is has my one of my friends seen it and can recommend it to me right so they're losing that additional revenue stream since again they're consoling the entire revenue stream behind HBO Max at this point and then thirdly, you know, this isn't really talked about as much, but television distribution rights of films have a boost when they have a strong theatrical box office because they can because studios can use that as a negotiating tool. Um, and again, that is reduced leverage in the scenario where you go streaming first. You know, again, if I have two films, like one with a strong box office and one with a mediocre box office, if I sell the rights to broadcast that film on television some weekend afternoon or to an international streaming service where HBO Max is not available, the one with a stronger box office is going to demand a higher licensing fee. And so that's money that, HB, that Warner Brothers is giving up in this scenario. So in fact, in, in sort, I would categorize this as Warner Media is leveraging, mortgaging, whatever verb you want to use, giving up all of the above revenue in the hopes that they will get a larger number of subscribers to sign up for HBO Max at $14.99 a month and stay subscribed, and it offsets the revenue they would have made above with residuals. Heck, I'm not even... I'm, I'm, Honestly, I'm not even con convinced that they did the math to calculate whether the potential new subscriber revenue offsets the production costs of the films that they're putting onto the service, much less the potential box office that they're sacrificing. I don't have those numbers. I don't know if they've done those those calculations. Um, it, this might be a Hail Mary play to really try to jumpstart the HBO Max brand. And, you know, it could be kind of like a scale play with Netflix, right? Uh, Netflix for a long time was operating at a loss, right? Offering a really great product at, you know, at, with having to spend a lot of money on licensing out content. And, you know, this is, again, before people were valuing li the license fee of their content, but also, you know, eventually producing their own content at a cost, right? And, you know, you get scale, you know, at some point you hope the product becomes, uh, what's it, uh, you know, something that the, the consumer can't live without, irreplaceable. Um, and so then you start raising the prices and monetizing it better that way. Um, but, you know, 
with the way that the streaming landscape is shaping up, there's always going to be competition, I think. I don't think HBO Max has that luxury. So, you know, another thing that I could see happening is that they just simply write off films in the future, right, that they do as being, uh, you know, a loss leader, right? Like they, they basically say, okay, we'll make the next DC film and release it, you know, primarily to keep people subscribed to HBO Max. Um, we're not going to make as much money on it as we would have before, but presumably they think that the money that they make through subscriptions and re- re- recurring subscription on HBO Max is enough to offset the cost of making that film and make it worth it. So, yeah, I mean, you know, now Warner Brothers did say that this is an ex- extraordinary one-year measure specifically for 2021 given the global pandemic. And, you know, after all, they can't just sit on these films indefinitely, right? Like, if they keep pushing the films back, eventually that means they have to push the rest of the 2022 back. And obviously, you know, they have shareholders. They can't go for too long without making some sort of revenue off of these films where they've already, you know, materialized the cost. Now, you know, and, and even if they do keep on pushing it back, that's just additional marketing costs they're going to have to keep doing to keep it in the public consciousness. Now, setting aside the question of whether or not I'm bullish or bearish of, you know, whether or not the uh, the vaccine are is coming back and whether they think the vaccine is going to be coming out, you know, in a timely manner, I'm going to take this idea that, you know, this is just a one-year measure with a grain of salt. After all, last year, last week, you know, just before this, they said, oh, Wonder Woman's a one-time exception that we're going to be doing this. And here we are a week later, right? Now, you know, if this, if this experiment does well, whatever internal KPIs, whatever metrics that they have set for how many subscribers they need to onboard and, and keep retained, uh, you know, this could very well be Warner's move to just keep doing this indefinitely into the future and kind of, you know, the genie has left the bottle, they've opened Pandora's box. Uh, the threat that a lot of the exhibition market sees is the risk that this resets the baseline of consumer expectation about what blockbuster films are and how they become available to them. You know, in 2022 and 2021 and 2022 and beyond, if, you know, the $10 to $15 movie ticket is less palatable for the, for consumers in the future if, you know, they get used to $15 a month. And yeah, again, pro-consumer to be able to offer that, right? But the gloom and gloom here is that, you know, the, the real cost, and we'll talk about this a little, in a little bit, is that if if the incoming revenue is only so much from recurring users, Warner Brothers as a studio is not going to be able to make as many great movies or as many big movies. And if that's the case where, you know, that sentiment of we need instant gratification for Disney, for, you know, for uh, Universal, for Sony, for Paramount to do the same thing, those studios are going to have to, if they're going to meet the consumer with, with what they want, follow suit and, again, produce fewer movies and smaller movies as opposed to what we have now. Now, of course, again, this isn't without risk, right? We said that Warner's giving up a lot of money uh, on this, and if they don't hit the numbers that they're targeting, they're sitting with a lot of egg on their face. You know, they devalue the brands of their films by giving them the stigma of being director streaming. For better or for worse, it still remains the case that people just see a director streaming film as not quite as high quality as something that come out as an exclusive theatrical release, you know. If they get to only 25 million users by the end of 2021, I don't think that's going to be enough. You know, they're at 8 million now, maybe 12 million now. They're just doubling the number of users. They need to get closer to the Disney Plus numbers of 50 million users, I think, for this to really be a success for them. And the fact that they did this before, again, before they see, before they saw the 1984 comes out, before they saw what Disney's going to be doing later this week on Investor Day, this is how important and how all in they are on this move. 
Okay, so 15 minutes in, we've just talked about this is the Warner Brothers perspective on things. But of course, the rest of the industry has been reacting to this. On the exhibition side of this, you know, of course, movie theaters aren't exactly happy about this. You know, even though, aside from AMC, most of the response was more or less subdued and maybe even a little bit resigned. You know, I think given that, that movie theaters know audiences won't be able to return until somewhere at the earliest, even then not in full, it probably won't be until this time next year, holiday next year. Um, if that, that we're going to have you know, theaters at capacity again. And so you know, maybe theaters are accepting this for maybe like the first uh, couple months of the year and maybe by the summer or so, you know, they're hoping to be able to negotiate better terms. Maybe if Warner insists on continuing with this model for the rest of the year, they can negotiate having a 60s, maybe even 70% rev share of the theatrical grosses if that's really what, what Warner wants to be able to do. Um, you know, Cinemark, for example, right? Uh, oh, sorry, Cineworld, or and the owner of Regal said that you know they would be hoping to renegotiate this come come down the line. Um, you know, it is you know it is, however, telling uh, that the biggest theaters only got word of this only about an hour before the announcement was made last week, and the smaller chains apparently only got like ten minutes or so, um, and some of us, some of them, didn't even hear it until the actual announcement with the rest of us. This is a far cry from the coordination between uh, studio theaters and Warner uh, with the release of Tenet earlier this year, even though that fell flat domestically. Now, again, probably the most outspoken was AMC's CEO Adam Aaron, who said that they that they while they were okay with Wonder Woman coming out because it was still obviously in the middle of the pandemic and the COVID situation, uh, with the upcoming vaccine coming out soon. Uh, Quote, uh, we will aggressively pursue economic terms that preserve our, meaning AMC's, business. Uh, again, this likely means a better theatrical split akin to what the 60% are taking now from Wonder Woman 1984 sales. Um, now, some theaters I've heard have been grumbling and saying that they want to charge maybe only $1 or $5 for Warner Brothers tickets. You know, a little bit of spite, you know, cutting off the nose to spite the face, so to speak. But, you know, if theaters don't expect to see a lot of people, uh, don't expect to see a lot of uh, people coming back to theaters, you know, Maybe they play hardball with, with Warner. They're going to get a little lion's share of revenue anyway to reduce the amount of theatrical revenue that's, that Warner is getting because the idea for Warner is, yeah, we're getting the revenue from HBO Max coming in, but they're also subsidizing it with whatever international, whatever you know, domestic theatrical they get. Maybe they have those calculations in place, but if you know, theaters pay a lower, uh, charge a lower ticket price and give a lower amount of revenue back uh, to Warner at this point, you know, maybe that messes with the calculations and then this ends up not being as financially viable for Warner down the line. Who knows? Uh, speaking of AMC, this is actually pretty interesting. It's a pretty interesting uh, difference in the way that Universal approached kind of the the situation um, with the death of streaming by, you know, they still are putting movies in theaters exclusively, right, for 17 days um, before, you know, putting them uh, directly to, to VOD and giving a rev share with studios at this point. At this point, you know, apparently there's no kind of talks, obviously, given the one-hour window to theaters at this point. Um, and so... You know, there's no rev share in place with with theaters in this, right? Um, the rev share is, I I guess, that they have you know technically getting a theatrical release still and and getting better terms there. Um, but I think this also speaks to the studios and their priorities as well. Obviously, Warner Brothers is all on the HBO Max. Universal, on the other hand, their streaming platform is Peacock, uh, which, one, is doing a better place in terms of users, about 20 million users uh, so far. Um, and it's supported via ads, uh, you know, and and... And so, you know, 
no, notably, none of the other major studios have made comment on on Warner's move. Obviously, you know we'll see what Disney lands on all of this with their investor day coming up this week. But if I had to guess, you know I don't think Universal will be as gung ho about pursuing something like this, given they already have a deal in place with AMC and Cinemark. Uh, Disney, you know, being the dominant position, seventy million users on Disney Plus, isn't really keen to I think. Uh, do the similar thing and screw over theaters. Um, I think they're going to have some of those smaller films come to Disney Plus, such as Cruella and Pinocchio live action. You know, that's that's the rumors on the street that, that they're going to go to Disney Plus directly. While you know, MCU or mainline animated films or Pixar films or Star Wars films uh, would still be going directly to uh, theaters. Uh, Soul aside, again, given the circumstances with with COVID, uh, Sony doesn't have a big streaming platform they can really utilize for this kind of model, so they're just going to be business as usual. You know, of the big studios, I think only Paramount might be tempted to pull a similar stunt uh, with the launch of Paramount Plus uh, in early 2021. But even then, for most of the films that they've had coming out this year, they've in Instead of, you know, uh, they've just sold the rights to to other streaming companies instead of trying to boost their own CBS Plus. Now, and the bigger implication of studios, you know, is again, if consumer sentiment, sentiment does in fact shift as a result of this move uh, where, where instant gratification is prioritized. Um, and the, quest, the question will then be, right, if that's the case and they have to, you know, switch to a streaming first model instead of theatrical model, then if that's in my head, I see that as less revenue coming in. Um, again, I could be wrong in my prediction, but assuming that less revenue is coming in, then you know there will be fewer bigger budget films being made, and there are fewer number of films coming out coming made. So you know, say goodbye either way to a lot of ambitious two hundred million budget blockbusters coming out if this you know model sticks around. Now, you know, we already talked about exhibitors, we talked about studios. Um, notably, you know, there's also streaming technologies, specifically Roku. Now, Amazon had struck a deal with Warner uh, prior to Wonder Woman coming out to bring HBO Max to Fire TVs. Roku still has not budged, and you know, they're still a major part of the streaming market. At first glance, you know, this may this move may seem like a boost to Warner's position in this negotiation. They have more content that Roku users want to be able to watch, encouraging Roku to allow HBO Max on its platform. On the flip side, the fact that this is clearly an all-in strategy from Warner Brothers means that uh, Roku is has more leverage in that, you know, they know this is important so they can demand more from Warner Brothers in this situation. You know, after all, if anything, this might even be a little bit in Roku's favor. After all, you know, if you're an existing Roku TV user, you're not going to get a new TV just because you can't watch HBO Max. You'll just wait till HBO Max is available or watch many or the dozens of other channels Roku has available. You know, Roku being all in on streaming as their core business, as opposed to Amazon, who streaming is but one of many businesses within the Amazon conglomerate, kind of explains why Roku is holding out looking for a better deal. Um, as a reminder, the main thing that they're looking for is a cut of the subscription fees at $15 a month, as well as eventually when Warner Brothers starts adding uh, ad inventory to their content, getting 30% of ad inventory to you know help monetize that way. Now, the final major party and the one I'm you know kind of particularly interested in are the talent and producers. And this isn't really, there is a business component to this and there's like a non-business component to this, right? So, you know, the business component, we've covered in past episodes how one of the things that makes Hollywood accounting Hollywood accounting is the fact that the participation payouts to 
you know, gross payouts, a percentage of, you know, total revenue coming in that goes to the producers and talents such as directors or actors. You know, the, the idea here is that instead of taking a higher upfront salary uh, for working on the film, you know, they'll have a lower fee to participate at f- upfront. And then whatever box office revenue is made, they'll get a percentage of that being whatever is made at the box office in theaters. You know, the way, you know, that way, the upfront cost of producing the film is less for the studio. Um, and on, and then the talent is then incentivized to really work hard to make the film as great as possible in order to maximize their payday at the end, at the, at, off of the back end. So obviously, you can see how moving it to a mixed streaming and theatrical model means that there's going to be less theatrical revenue for uh, these stars who have these participation deals coming in. Now, I'm sure, you know, in the uh, coming days and weeks, Warner Brothers will hopefully be negotiating payouts with these individuals. Uh, reportedly, Wonder Woman's director, Patty Jenkins, and lead Gal Gadot already had their back-ends paid out to the you know, tune of $10 million each, uh, adding to the cost of, to this gamble by Warner. Now, that's the business side of it. The other side of this is, of course, that, you know, while as much as you know it's a business in Hollywood, a lot of directors and, and actors really want to have their vision realized on the big screen. They didn't sign up to make these films for a streaming platform. Um, you know, obviously, you know, Dennis Villanueva of Dune has expressed his disappointment at this move because he really wanted to get a theatrical release for Dune. Chris Nolan has called this quote very messy and a bait and switch, and not how you treat filmmakers and stars and people who have had a lot of work on these projects who deserve to be consulted and spoken to about what's going on to their work. End quote. Uh, John M. Chu, who specifically worked with Warner for Crazy Rich Asians because, you know, he actually turned down a Netflix offer that would have paid out even more uh, to have Crazy Rich Asians come directly to the streamer because he wanted, you know, Asian and Asian American representation on the main main theatrical screen. You know, he's working on Lin-Manuel's uh, next, uh, fil- or next film, uh, um, you know, In the Heights, and you know, John M. 2 is reported as being "quote unquote" cell shocked. Uh, even James Gunn, you know, he's pretty agnostic when it comes to whether it's on streaming or theatrical. Honestly, but on the business side of things, he's not really impressed with apparently what's been shared with him on how to make it right for him and the other profit sharing participants on the Suicide Squad. And this even goes up to the guilds, right, and, and agencies, right? Reps for Denzel Washington, Margot Robbie, Will Smith, Keanu Reeves, Hugh Jackman, Angelina Jolie, you know, the stars of the films I talked about at the beginning of the episode, they're all wondering, like, hey, why did Gal Gadot, you know, and Patty Jenkins get the, it's called the Wonder Woman money now, you know, why did they get a special treatment? Uh, and, they, and how come we're not getting the same treatment and not getting talked to ahead of time for this, for this situation? Um, there were potential talks of a boycott of Warner Brothers from the Directors Guild of America. And Warner is, you know, getting the nickname within the industry of the former bros, right? Um, you know, this this adds tension to the relationships between Warner and the talent pool in Hollywood. You know, going back to Chris Nolan Tenet, he was given a lot of freedom to really produce his film free of studio interference with the belief it would have a technical release as he intended. And, you know, even if there were was a subpar financial result as a result of it not doing well when, when it premiered earlier this year, it, you know, it still had that belief that, hey, Warner's doing right by the talent. If producers and actors are coming into these film productions agreements with a back-end involved and with a vision to have it on screens, there is now going to be a degree of hesitancy that Warner may just end up sacrificed has, has sacrificed by moving it all to HBO Max machine. And if you're not sure if your film's going to be on the big screen or end up on HBO Max without you being warned about it in advance, you know, 
this could have longer implications for Warner Brothers down the line, uh, where talent might just not want to work with them in the future. And that and content, if content is king, you know, the content makers are the ones who who de- who determine that. Now, in, in in one specific case, right? I I, I told you to remember Godzilla versus Kong and the Dune films, uh, Legendary Pictures. Uh, so they're the company that actually produced those films, right? They paid for seventy five percent of the budget. I think uh, it's something like one sixty million dollars for 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 Godzilla versus Kong, one seventy five for Dune. Now they're raising a ruckus because apparently uh, they were not told in advance of this that uh, they would be moving to HBO Max. Now, since they are the producer, paying seventy five percent of the film. Warner Brothers is really just a distributor for them. They are the ones handling the theatrical release. Um, and I'm not sure if the contract included streaming or not, but it seems that, hey, we're doing a theatrical release. We'll just also put it on our streaming platform. Apparently, you know, last week I mentioned there was a rumor that uh, War- that Netflix was offering $200 million to Legendary to get Godzilla vs. Kong, uh, which, again, would cover that $160 million production budget and then some. Now... Warner Brothers apparently blocked it, and now we know why. They just wanted to put it on HBO Max. It doesn't seem like they've given a counter offer to Netflix. It's not two hundred million, but actually two hundred and fifty million offer that they were that they had. So you know, there was, you can see why Legendary wants to go to court over these two films, right? Like uh, we're planning on making money from this film. You are kneecapping it by not having it be in theaters and not have as much theatrical release, and you're using it as a advertising tool for your own platform, from which we're not going to get any residual revenue off of. That is uh, exactly what uh, Legendary is, is is upset with here. And you know, rumors are right that Village Roadshow, who completely produces The Matrix, may also be doing a similar thing. So. Again, this move is definitely just ask for forgiveness from Warner Brothers as a power move and ask for forgiveness as opposed to permission. So in any case, you know, regardless of if this is a good idea or not uh, for whoever may be involved, the gears have started turning on this. You know, HBO Max has already removed the free trial ahead of the Wonder Woman 1984 release later this month, uh, kind of similar to how Disney did with Hamilton before it dropped earlier this year. Uh, they've announced plans to expand to Latin America and Europe in 2021 to go along with this plan. Um, and according to research company Aptopia, user sessions in HBO Max uh, are now at an all-time high on a daily basis uh, due to a combination of this as well as you know recent uh, Amazon Fire news and the West Wing and Fresh Prince uh, reunion specials. Also tendency related, it looks like uh, Warner's planning on two, launching two other streaming services. One's a subscription-based CNN service the other is a free ad-supported version of HBO Max as well. Um, and also another free ad-supported version more focused on television shows from TBS and TNT cable channels. Um, though that's likely coming in 2022. And also, really tangentially, apparently Discovery is, is launching a $5 per month streaming service with 55,000 episodes from 2,500 uh, um, uh, shows and, or 200 plus shows. You know, that, that's pretty crazy. And, you know, this is my personal thing, right? But I'm, I'm really curious to see how the Academy will react to all this. You know, they are, will they disqualify Warner Films from being eligible for the 2022 Oscars if they release on both streaming and theatricals and, and theater simultaneously, right? Um, the Oscars, you know, is, is, is frankly, right? Like the Academy is made up of a lot of the Guild members. And if they're really in, in, interested in having a theatrical release, um, this thing that basically kills the, the theatrical window is, that's a, that's, that's a move, right? Um, also, speaking of, apparently the Oscars has promised they're not going to have a Zoom award, so they're going to have it all in person next year. So we'll see what that looks like. 
Anyway, uh, I try to avoid having hot takes on this podcast because as, we, as we've just seen, it's really hard to be predictable with the box office. And at the end of the day, I'm no professional. I'm just some average dude, amateur, speculating the whys and hows of what happens in this industry for my amusement. And I do it because, you know, as a lover of stories and as a lover of media, you know, I, I know as much as there's an artistic quality, there's also a business part. The financial performance of these films dictate what kind of stories get told in Hollywood. I can't say for sure that you know moving to streaming for Warner Brothers is correct or not finance. I don't have the models to predict how many users will sign up and and how much need, how many need to, to offset the cost the potential lost revenue of these having a pure theatrical release. What I can say is that I am personally I feel for and I'm disappointed for the storytellers and creatives who end up being the ones sort things. I think right they're the ones who have the creative vision and stories spurned in pursuit of profits when there are other options available. Yes, none of them ideal. Or, you know, the long-term implications for us as the fans, right? For you as a fan, if I want my story to be told and shared in a particular way, I want it to I, I have a vested interest in it making money. And if this move, as I as I'm thinking it's going to do, won't make as much money for the studios uh, on a per movie basis as it would in a theatrical basis, that just means we're gonna get less of the stories I love. So, you know, if I'm not, if I sound like I'm not a fan, I'm not entirely. Um, if if not because you know, not because I don't think streaming is the future or whatever, but just because I think that it just means that the kind of stories being coming out of Hollywood aren't going to be the stories that uh, that I want to be th- by seeing told. Anyway, uh, that's like a, a really long main story. Uh, we'll try to get through the rest of this really quickly. There was a it's not the it's a big elephant in the room, but there's other box office related news. We'll go through it quickly. Um, LA and California in general have shut down pretty much everything as a result of cases spiking in the state. Uh, Hong Kong also closed theaters, uh, theaters, and Seoul, South Korea, is closing most businesses after 8 p.m. Interestingly, South Korea have also began running TV shows within their theaters as a way to try to stay afloat um, after that news of the popcorn delivery last week. Uh, Cineworld, owner of Regal Cinemas, said they are planning on reopening by the end of Q1 2021 in both the UK and the US, likely to try to catch Bond, assuming all goes well with vaccine distribution in April. Uh, speaking of, reports from Inside Eon, the Bond production company, suggest that the total budget for Bond ha- has swollen to $290 million. Uh, meanwhile, uh, AMC has put out another round of shares for sale, um, about 200 million shares total, or about 700 million dollars total. Uh, another strategy to try and avoid, you know, going into bankruptcy until you know uh, more box office revenue comes in. Uh, they might be waiting a while though, because uh, a Deloitte study found that 71% of consumers said they would be uncomfortable with going to a movie theater in the next month, and over half said that the same for six months into the future. And only about 18% of U.S. consumers have been to a movie theater since the pandemic started. Now, over at Disney, you know, a, a wave of layoffs took place last Thursday, with about, apparently over 100 executives across different departments being impacted as part of the restructuring to focus more on streaming, uh, not only in the studio business, but also on places like ABC News and Radio Disney. Now, a couple of award-focused movies from Sony have, have gotten their wide release delayed, um, while still having a December run to qualify. Uh, the Father, starring Anthony Hopkins and Olivia Coleman, moves from December 18th to February 26th. The Truffle Hunters moves from Christmas to March 12th. And H- Heidi Airwing's debut, I Carry You With Me, moves from January 8th to Spring 2021. Now, the last two bit of big news I want to cover is a little bit longer, um, but it's, it's, it's pretty interesting. So, you know, of course, first off, we have the uh, Disney Investor Day coming this week on the 10th. I'll be tuning in to see what they announce and, of course, to be able to cover it next on next week's show. 
But a bit of a preview, it looks like I mentioned that Disney is going to be moving the live-action remakes of Pinocchio, Peter Pan, and Cruella to Disney Plus exclusives. There will also apparently be announcements of new films and product projects from Marvel, Lucasfilms, and Pixar, both on TV and in theatrical. Um, I'm also seeing less confirmed speculation that there will be some sort of integration of Disney Plus with Hulu or ESPN, maybe you know more quote-unquote adult material for the platform, um, and maybe even a return of Premier Access in some capacity. We'll just have to see. The other big news that happened is a bit of sodden for it. Uh, so this past weekend was the debut of Paul W.S. Anderson's Monster Hunter adaptation in China. Uh, given that his most recent film, Resident Evil, the final chapter, on a $40 million budget made $161 million in China, compared to the you know $26 million here in the States, this film is definitely targeted toward the Chinese audience, uh, especially with release dates being now uh, being now, you know, in December, when many are closed in the States, while most of those in China, most movies in China, theaters in China are now open again at full capacity. However, after the first evening of screenings, the film was pulled from theaters over a 10-second throwaway joke that was perceived by China to be in poor taste, a reference to some racist nursery rhyme about Chinese having dirty knees. Yeah, you can't make this up. Uh, multiple hundreds of thousands of multiple hundreds of millions of dollars uh, potentially lost due to a dumb 10-second middle school joke that easily could have been demitted from the film without with nothing of value being lost. Like this is your major market that producers and, and scriptwriters like. What were you thinking, including this in the film? Anyway, it looks like plans to re-release the film without the scene have been suspended, so the film is pretty much banned there. You know, the, the producer, Germany's Constantine Films, have issued an apology, but it seems like it's too little too late. Um, you know, before it was pulled, it made about five million US dollars, and in five other markets it opened in. It opened to about two point five million, uh, number one in all markets. So, you know, total take homes about seven point five million so far. Um, a far cry from what we were expecting going into the weekend. That said, the film did have a pretty mediocre 7.8 rating on Maoyan and a 6.4 on Duban. So it, was, it wasn't going to do gangbusters, but still, why would you put this joke in when it's your target demographic? Anyway, we'll wrap up the show by talking about the box office numbers uh, domestically. In first place, The Crudes 2 repeats its number one hold, uh, hold on number one with a 4.4 million take in its second week, dropping 54% in 2,205 theaters for a per theater average of $2,014. Without the Thanksgiving crowd to boost their numbers, it it makes sense to drop that much. Um, It's made about 20 million domestically and 39 million internationally uh, for just about 60 million worldwide. Uh, in second place, Focus Features Films, Half Brothers, released to $700,000 in 1369 theaters, per theater average of $511 opening weekend. In third place, uh, Universal's Freaky in its fourth week dropped 41% to $474,000 in 1,502 theaters for a per theater average of $316. Total domestic, $7.7 million, $5.5 million internationally, so $13.3 million worldwide. Out of a $6 million budget, not bad at all, Blumhouse. Uh, in fourth place, newcomer rom-com All My Life, starring uh, Asian lead Harry Sum Jr., made $370,000 on the 970 theaters, per theater average $382. Um, another $700,000 uh, internationally puts it at $1.1 million. Um, a bit of an underperformance compared to the $25 million budget. I guess this this isn't the sort of film that people are trying to go to see in a, in a pandemic if you know theaters are open around them. Um, though, you know, with the Universal deal coming in place, it'll be on streaming in a couple of weeks. 
And then finally, in fifth place, the war with Grandpa drops 47% in week nine to make $315,000 in 1,284 five theaters per theater average of $246. Domestic gross, $17.6 million, $6 million internationally, total of $23.6 million. Now, we don't have any reported numbers for Chloe Zhao's Nomadland limited run, um, which it looks like, you know, that they actually rescheduled for a wider release in March and just had, like, the limited run, including virtual theaters at the Lincoln Center here in New York to qualify for the award season. Um, you know, in total, this week's box office made $7.5 million, a far drop from the $13.5 million last weekend, though, you know, that was topped up by the crude's large uh, tentpole release. You know, if you you know go from nine to uh, what's it uh, um, about five million, right? That's a four million dollar drop. So that's over half of the drop. You know, accounted for right there. Now the next big no no this weekend there aren't any major releases. In fact, the next really big release is of course Christmas Day, uh, Wonder Woman with its mixed model release, uh, Mon- Monster Hunters domestic release, as well as awards contenders Promising Young Woman and One Night in Miami. Um, of course, Soul is also coming out uh, on streaming on Disney Plus on Christmas. In comparison, uh, last year this week made uh, $89 million, uh, which was led by $35 million from the third week of Frozen 2. Uh, international box office, we already talked about Monster Hunter in China. Um, without that out of the way, local films The Endless of Endl- The End of Endless Love and Soul Snatcher made 23.6 and 19.5 million respectively. Uh, the Croods 2 made another 11.7 million this weekend as well, bringing it to, to 36.1 million in China. Uh, the Invisible Man also opened to a modest uh, 50- 1.53 million US dollars. Um, 1.53 million. Um, as noted, uh, Wonder Woman is slated to release in China on December 18th. And then in Japan, uh, Demon Slayer made another 6 million uh, this past weekend. Uh, total uh, locally is now 20, 28.8 billion, just about 2 billion yen or 19.2 million US, million US dollars away from Spirit of the Way's 30.8 billion yen benchmark to become the highest grossing film in Japan's history. Also, the Violet Evergarden movie just crossed two billion total, uh, two billion yen total, another benchmark for that film. Uh, in addition, uh, The Witches, the Roald Dahl adaptation that premiered on HBO Max here in the states, made seven hundred ninety thousand in Japan this opening weekend. In the last, internationally, so far, it's made eighteen point nine million. Uh, and with that, that's a wrap on this episode of the Box Office Watch podcast. Uh, next week, we'll be covering, as I mentioned, the Disney Investor Day coming later this week, as well as you know whatever other surprises come our way. Uh, that that next next week's episode, by the way, will be the last regular episode of 2020. Uh, the last two weeks of the year of December, um, I'm going to be taking off to relax and work on some special projects. Uh, that means that the Wonder Woman debut I will be covering uh, on our first episode back on t- January 1st, 2021. Um, hopefully, that gives us a little bit more news as well to see how everything pans out in the long run, not just the hot take numbers fresh off the press. That said, uh, don't worry, I'm still going to put a special New Year's uh, end-of-year episode for the podcast to give you something to look over until then. Uh, in any case, uh, send me ideas for what I should cover via email at boxofficewatchpodcast at zmail.com or on Twitter at BOWatchPodcast. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, and Google Play as well. Uh, if you could leave a review on your podcast service of choice or on Podchaser, that would be super helpful. I'll include those links in the show notes below. Uh, numbers used in this show come from thenumbers.com. Our intro and outro music come from Kevin Mackley. I'd find his stuff at the incompetech.filmmusic.io. Editing and production is provided by Ninja Boy Media. Until next time, this has been the Box Office Watch Podcast. And remember, our watch goes on. Yeah.